Please grab a seat. I reckon the, the two easiest things for a preacher to do are either uh, take people on a guilt trip when God speaks grace, and there's all sorts of reasons why a preacher may do that. Uh, here's the other one. Uh, sugarcoat a rebuke uh, and speak platitudes uh, when God calls for change. Uh, I'm nervous of doing uh, both of those things today. I think the passage before us uh, that was just read for us from Malachi is, well, Malachi said uh, right at the start of the book that it's a heavy word and this is, uh, well, this is, I think, it at its heaviest. I'm nervous of taking us on a guilt trip uh, and missing God's grace. I'm nervous of sugarcoating the, well, the serious rebuke that comes from God in this passage. So let's pray together and ask that God will help us steer a course between those things and to hear him well. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak because you love us and you know us far better than we know ourselves and so we pray for humble hearts, hearts that tremble at your word, hearts that listen with a view to being changed by that word, hearts that hear in that word where to go for help. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us. And we pray this for your glory's sake and for our good. Amen. Well, please uh, turn to Malachi, Malachi chapter 1. We're in uh, from verse 6 uh, this morning and hopefully inside your service sheet is a little outline of where we're heading as we look at this next little section. Let me begin with uh, this from, uh, from the Westminster Catechism and really it, it sums up uh, what life's about. Uh, here's, as far as the scriptures are concerned, the purpose of life. The chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, that's our job. As you wake up on Monday morning, you're wondering, what am I meant to be doing today? The chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, don't you love that word, enjoy? Our world is full of things to enjoy, things that I suspect, and I think there are these for each of us, that even just the thought of it, let alone the experience of it, even the thought of it is pleasurable. Um, I've got lots of those. We could spend the next 30 minutes just uh, me sharing things that I enjoy. That would be interesting for me. Uh, perhaps less so for you. Uh, let me give you one. Uh, Churros Head on the uh, New South Wales south coast is my happy place. Uh, there's almost nothing that happens in Churros Head. Uh, there's nothing that's happened there for years and that's, I think, why I love it so much. I think 30 summers as a family uh, we've been there and it's just, uh, I, just uh, I love every part of it. And uh, sometimes uh, when life is uh, getting all a bit too much or I'm struggling to sleep at night, that's where I go. I go to Churros Head, at least in my mind. And uh, that's my happy place, the sort of place, even the thought of it is pleasurable. Uh, but there are many things for each of us, uh, so many good things in this world, from friendships to music to arts to sleep uh, to uh, great things in nature. All of them are so good and meant to be enjoyed. And here's the thing, those things that we enjoy most, I wonder if you've noticed this for yourself, inevitably they spill over into praise. Have you found that? Uh, Churros Head was known to, to me and my family growing up. Uh, over the year, early years of uh, our marriage for Liz and I, I would speak of this place. I couldn't help but speak of this place, this, uh, for her, a fictitious place, until we went there together and now we've passed that on to our children. It's a shared joy. Uh, that's how joys work. That's what we've been created for. The things that we enjoy, uh, we, we inevitably want to speak of, praise. 
this is how C.S. Lewis puts it. He said, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Praise of weather, of wine, of dishes, of cars, of colleges, of countries, of children. People spontaneously praise whatever they value and they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. Uh, Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Uh, Lewis says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Uh, We're meant to praise things that we enjoy, that are things that are greater than us. But as good as such pleasures are, and they are very good, the things in this world, they are just, if you like, the shallow end of joy and delight that God has wired us up for. He has made us to praise, but these things are, if you like, just at the shallow end, as good as they are. And, And here's the thing, often we are happy splashing about in the shallows. Uh, I think Malachi, really the whole book, but especially perhaps this section, verse 6 to 14 of chapter 1, is a call to the deep end. It's a call to the deep end of the joy that God has given us as creatures and that is the joy of God himself. It comes because God knows our tendency is to stay in the shallows. It comes because he knows how easily, because of the good things in this world, we lose sight of how good he is how great he is, how worthy of praise. Uh, Christian author David Wells puts it like this. It's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by that that he is ethereal, but rather that he becomes unimportant. He rests upon our world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. Those who claim belief in God may uh, may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television his commands less authoritative than their appetites, his truth less compelling than the advertisers' sweet, fog and flattery of lies. Well, my aim today, uh, if we are faithful to Malachi, is to give God the weight of glory that he is due. And so let's go to Malachi, and uh, if you've got it open there, you'll remember the first words we heard last week as we opened this book together, from the Lord to his people. I have loved you says the Lord. Now last week we really saw writ large the glorious nature of God's love, how great his love is, this unconditional love, this sovereign love, this love freely given despite who we are, shown to his people. It's a love that, uh, well verse 5 we were told, should cause those who see it to tremble before it and to say great is the Lord, to praise him. And I think we listening to his word here today know how much more weighty our reason to praise him is than even what they experienced of his love. Uh, Listen to these words from 1 Peter that speaks of our experience of God's great love. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the reason he's done that, if you go along in 1 Peter to chapter 2, here's the reason, that you may declare his praises. The very reason we were wired up to praise things, to worship things, was because of him and his love. And that's why our gatherings are are filled with songs. Sometimes I get uh, asked questions, uh, why do we have so many songs when we get together? Here's why we have songs, because his greatness, his glory, his love is worth all the songs that we can muster. But such is the greatness of his love and his mercy. It demands not just the odd song or two on a Sunday morning, but our whole life. 
I wonder if you heard that in our other reading this morning, Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, in view of God's love, in view of his mercy, to offer yourselves, your whole selves, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, says God. We hear that, and uh, it's one of the more famous verses in the New Testament, and we say, of course, I know that's how it works. When we see how great God is and how good he has been to us, of course, my whole life is an act of worship to him. And when Israel first experienced uh, his love for them, uh, that was their response too. But if you remember last week, their current experience back in the Promised Land, some time from being back in the Promised Land, with everything, well, to be honest, a bit disappointing, uh, their experience is far from those heady days of first experiencing his love. Somehow over time the mercy of God has slipped from their view. And Malachi is now addressing a people whose worship of God is summed up by, well, the word indifference. Half-hearted. I suspect a drift we know all too well. So let me ask this. So why is our response to God and his greatness and the greatness of his love for us. Why is it so half-hearted so often? Now, the answer that Malachi gives is that, uh, well, at its heart is this, that we lose sight of his greatness. We simply just stop seeing it. And we are, as people, so easily distracted. I suspect that there are some perhaps here, maybe even myself as I uh, speak to you, who are wondering about our plans after the service. We're already moving on to that. I was at a, a meeting with a group of uh, Sydney Anglican ministers the other day and they were, uh, they were giving us some statistics about different qualities of um, ministers in, uh, in Sydney from all sorts of surveys that they had done. Do you know what our least strong attribute is? I love how they put that, least strong. They don't say weak, least strong. Uh, our least strong attribute is this, our ability to focus, to stay on task. Perhaps you've noticed that. But here's the thing, it's not just the ministers. Uh, we find it so hard to stay focused, don't we? So easily distracted and it's no small matter because remember we are made for worship. We are made, uh, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so Ma- Malachi, uh, in Malachi the Lord is helping those of us who lose focus easily. And if you read through this book, and I do encourage you to read through the whole thing in one go, it'll take you about 10 minutes I think you'll see that he keeps driving this point home. He wants us to see the point of life. Uh, 1 verse 6, my name will be great. 1 verse 11, three times in case we miss it, he says, my name, my name, my name. 1 verse 14, I'm a great king. I'm the Lord Almighty, that's my name. Uh, You can go through into chapter 2 and you'll say it again there. Chapter 3 and chapter 4, he repeats it again and again because he knows we lose focus. God is passionate about his name and the glory of his name. And his people Israel, well, they're not. And I suspect all too often we're not. And I reckon a question worth asking, uh, as you read through, and that's the repeated refrain all the way through this little book, uh, God's passion for his own name. Why Why is the Lord's passion for his own name and making much of his own name, why is that not just the height of arrogance? Because if we went out to morning tea and uh, you got in a conversation with someone and they said, you know, my ambition this week is to make much of myself. Uh, at that point, you're probably looking around and thinking, how can I uh, extricate myself from this conversation? Why is it not arrogant of God to be utterly committed to the glory of his own name? 
Well, let me give you the answer the Bible gives. It's simple. It's because he is glorious. If God did not make his name great and display his very great love for us, then he'd be hiding from us the one reality of this universe for which your worship was made. You were made to be satisfied in him alone, to be stunned by him, because he is glorious. He's worth your whole heart, your whole life. And what Malachi does for us here in this passage is he cites two characteristics of his own nature, God's own nature, that, that they've lost sight of. Have a look at verse 6. God says this, A son honours his father, and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? Two things about his nature he shows us here. Firstly, he is great, he is glorious because he's our father. Let me tell you two things about God's fatherliness towards us. Uh, First, it means this. This is why he's so great. He loves you. He cares for you and he's shown that. He's demonstrated it. His plans for you are good, very good. Every moment of your life as you head into this week, every detail, he loves it, he's involved in it as a father is with his children. Now, I don't know what your experience of human fathers has been like, but here is what the Bible says about your heavenly father. He's good and he loves you. Now, here's the second aspect of his fatherliness that perhaps we forget. I think we remember that he loves us, but here's the second thing, the fact that he's your father means. He's the author of your life. Uh, You're not an autobiography. He gave you life. He gives you life. That, that breath that you are breathing right now is because you have a heavenly father. That heartbeat that uh, is pounding in your chest is because your father gave it to you. Every gift from his hand and his hand holds your times. He's your father. And so he simply says to us, if I am your father, where is the honour due me? Our response, well, it's half-hearted. We lose sight of this love and we lose sight of our dependence on him because he is our father. Here's the second thing we lose sight of. We lose sight of that he is great because he's our king or master as he calls himself here in verse 6. Let me again highlight two aspects of his kingship that we, we so easily lose sight of. Here's the first thing. He rules everything in your life. Not just the religious bits, not just a a few hours on a Sunday morning. He's king over your family and your work and your relationships and your plans. You name it, he's king. This is how Abraham Kuyper put it. He says, uh, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He rules everything. And secondly, he rules everything gloriously, mightily. Do you see the name that he keeps giving himself in our passage and actually all the way through Malachi, he says, I'm the Lord Almighty. And that, that, that name, Lord Almighty, it basically means the God of angel armies, the God who can summon as many angels as you could possibly comprehend at his defence to do his bidding. He is a reigning king, an awesomely reigning king, and yet our response is, well, casual and sometimes bored and burdened because we have forgotten that he is our awesome king. I wonder if you know that experience. I know I do. 
where things get big and God gets small. Uh, that all of this that we deal with day to day, that seems real. And God's, well, a bit of a theory. Uh, listen to this quote that I read during the week. If you've never seen the sun, you'll be excited by a lamppost. If you turn your back on the greatness of God, you will fall in love with your own shadow and spend your life pursuing ephemeral greatness. That's us, isn't it? The greatness of our Father and King slips from view and our hearts get split or set on other great causes that we're about. And so what does this half-hearted worship look like? Well, again, have a look. Uh, Let me read from verse 6 to 8. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where's the honour due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It's you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, isn't that wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? You know, in the Old Testament, uh, the system of worship uh, centred around the temple and centred around uh, people bringing sacrifices that the priests would offer on their behalf. They'd, they'd offer them to cover over sin. They'd, they'd offer them as a thanksgiving to the Lord, to, to praise him, to honour him. Uh, that was the system used. And yet the Lord looks at that system in Malachi's day and rather than seeing honour, he sees them showing him contempt. The Old Testament sacrificial system was meant to display to God's people and indeed to the nations around that God is glorious and that being in relationship with him is a weighty thing. And by their worship, they declared his praises to the world. Uh, if you, uh, and you don't need to look back there now, but if you look at Leviticus 22, we're, we're given a picture there of what this worship should have looked like. And uh, basically the priests were to take great care to honour God by the way they offered these sacrifices, to treat them with respect. Now listen to this from uh, Leviticus 22. Do not bring to the temple anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from their herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or a free will offering, it must, not be, it must be without defect or blemish. Now look at verse 8 of Malachi chapter 1. That's what they were offering him, the dodgy dregs. And why is that such a problem? Well, if you go to the end of Leviticus 22, we're told this, Do not profane my holy name. For I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am, your, I am the Lord. Now you see how this works? You display God's greatness by bringing your best. I wonder if you've ever viewed your life that way. Uh, do, do you see the inseparable link in your life between the display of the Lord's glory in the world that you inhabit and the people that you're around by your decisions and your actions? Everything matters. Nothing is casual. Nothing is neutral to God. And so the question we need to ask as we think about our own lives is, does my life declare God to be great or something else? And so why would we not bring our best? Why were they not bringing their best? Well, let me give you the two reasons, I think, from the passage. Uh, Here's the first. It happens when we start to heed the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of our God. 
I think through the context, if you can. Uh, imagine you are a farmer in Malachi's time and you have a, a, a group of animals that, that are your livelihood. And you know you're supposed to offer your best at the temple as uh, honour to God, uh, but, but your thoughts run something like this. If instead I offer a, perhaps an unfit animal and it's going to be burnt up anyway, it, it makes little difference. But keeping my better animals uh, makes a, a whole world of difference to my livelihood if I could sell it or uh, use it to produce more. And so I hold my best back. Can't see it's going to make much difference, to be honest, at the temple. And yes, I know God's wisdom is telling me to do something else, but practical wisdom is telling me this is the way to go. And I think the same challenge is before us. If you think about Romans 12, verse 1 again, in view of God's mercy, offer your whole life as a living sacrifice. But practical wisdom says, give God the dregs. It's going to make little difference, practically speaking. It's all about grace anyhow. Uh, What's the big deal? I'll give him my last energies, my scraps of time on the edge, my surplus resources around other great causes that I'm committed to. It doesn't actually change my Christian life. I'm saved by grace, so what does it matter? But in my family and my career and uh, these things that I'm focused on, it makes huge difference if I give my best there. Uh, Being here on a Sunday doesn't actually affect that much. I'm not even on the roster this week. From a worldly wisdom point of view, you are correct. But from God's wisdom, you could not be more mistaken. God says every half-hearted response, every holdback, every time we second-guess his value compared to the other things that we value, dims the display of God's glory in the details of your life, the very purpose for which we're made. Do you feel the sting of this? I feel it acutely, holding back our best from God because there's more to gain in giving my best somewhere else. Uh, The picture in Malachi 1 is of a whole community who rather than spurring each other on in worship of God are are actually indifferent to their own heart's half-heartedness and that of those around them. Uh, It's a culture of indifference and license. You see there, verse 8, where it says, uh, is that not wrong? It's actually, it should be translated like this. It's actually the people saying that. They're saying, there's nothing wrong with that. And I hear that all the time. Acceptance and affirmation of half-hearts as the, well, the practical reality of being a Christian in a big, busy Western city like this. This is all I can give. Well, it should cause us to pause to see that that's not a new excuse. It's not a 21st century problem. Here's the second picture of uh, what half-hearted worship looks like. It looks like this. It looks like seeking the applause of the world more than you want to please the Lord. And God calls us out in, uh, I think, a stunning question in verse 8. This is is probably the the passage at its hardest. You see it there? When it's talking about our half-hearted offerings, it says, try giving that to your governor. There's no way you'd give that sort of effort to those you want to please in this world. You you wouldn't even dream of it. And yet you give it to God, says God. Has he become so small in our view and these things so big that we would think that that's the way to be? Uh, Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Uh, In churches all over our city, I'm not just talking about our church, this this is us. 
Uh, statistics say that, that about 20% of a church family do about 80% of the serving and sacrifices. Uh, which means most people in churches are spectators and consumers. And so picture verse 8 in context. Imagine you gave your work what you give to God and his people. Imagine you, uh, there you are at work and it's what, what, near the end of November and you're going for your annual review with the boss and uh, you, you've written down your thoughts on what the year has held and you, you hand him your account of the past year and uh, he, he takes the sheet and he looks at it and it's blank. And your boss scratches his head and he says, does this mean you've done nothing all year? And you respond, no, no, look, that, that's, that's not true. I, I've shown up pretty regularly to work. And your boss says, well, let's just forget about this year. It's almost over. New start. Uh, what are your plans for the year ahead? You've got some goals for the year ahead, what you're what you going to be about at work? Uh, and you say, oh, yeah, well, my thinking and my plans, are they're on the other side of the page. If you flip over, you'll see them there. And he flips it over and it's blank. And again, he scratches his head and he says, does this mean you have no plans for the year ahead? And you respond, well, no, not really. You know, I haven't had a lot of time for that. I've been busy with other things. And hey, how about this? I will show up whenever I can. Verse 8, the Lord says, if you approach your work the way you approach me, you would be unemployed. And he says, why are you devoting your best life to the things of this world instead of the father and king of this world? Uh, here's another example. Uh, let me read you something that I read this week that, that I found hugely challenging as a, as a Christian parent. We said this, We are people that are so busy and immersed in the activities of this world that we wonder when we're going to have time to give ourselves to God. Ours is a culture where we immerse our children in activity after activity after activity and run them all over the town to this activity and that and we tell them you need to get a good, good education, you need to be athletic, you need to spend hours practising that instrument, you need to spend hours on your homework, you need to get ready, you need, uh, university is coming soon, you need to get that good degree, you need a good job, you need a good family, you need a good living, you need to be successful at all these things. And it's not that these things are bad in and of themselves, it is not necessarily what they are getting from us, it's what they're not getting. Because along the way, we're not teaching them to serve God. We're teaching them to give their best to the things of this world and to give their leftovers to God. We're teaching them to be just like us. And I read that and I thought, God help us not to raise a generation of people who live for the applause of this world who will one day stand before God and give an account for their lives and they will hold up all these achievements before him and they will all suddenly be stripped from them because they have listened to the things that we have told them are important. That's a heavy word, isn't it? Well, how does the Lord respond to our half-hearted worship? Here's two responses. First one in verse 8 and 9. First, he doesn't accept it. What's fascinating about this passage is he says, I don't need your worship to get glory to the very ends of the earth. I will do that. That's my purpose. Right now there are more angels than you can possibly comprehend giving praise to God. He doesn't need it from us. And uh, when it comes to our resources, he says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. 
He knows this is for our good. He knows this is what we're made for. And so if we offer him half-hearted responses, he says, I won't accept it. In fact, verse 9 is a hugely challenging verse. It's, it's actually mistranslated in the NIV. It sounds like what it's saying is, don't worry, even if you give these half-hearted responses, you can just claim God's grace and he'll accept it anyway. But actually what it's saying is this, don't think you can claim God's grace as an excuse for this. He's calling out the myth of the grace credit card. The myth that because I am saved by grace, that God desires no works from me. That it's all about grace. But here's the thing, what grace does is it leads to worship. Life, soul, all worship. Reality is, Galatians 6 says, God cannot be mocked. He will not accept indifferent worship. Here's the second thing he responds with, verse 10. He says it's weightless to him. Now, I said verse 8 was the most challenging verse, but uh, how about verse 10? Oh, that one of you would just shut the doors of the temple so that you would no longer light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, what a stunning rebuke. If all we can offer the Lord is half-hearted indifference, burdened, bored attitude towards him, he says it would be better if you close the doors of St Andrews. Turned it into a rug shop. You know the word useless here is used a, a number of times in the Old Testament and really what it has behind it is the idea of something that it doesn't cost anything. God says no more leftovers no more things that are of no value to you. I don't, I don't want those things. Now the point here, and this is, this is important to grasp, is not that our worship with our whole lives, as Romans 12 says, needs to be expensive in order to buy God's favour. We have his favour already. Nothing can take that away from us because of the very expensive sacrifice of his son. That's guaranteed. The point is that our worship should reflect the value we put on God and on that very expensive sacrifice. The point is that our worship should say, this is how much I value that relationship that he spent everything to bring about. And let's conclude. What hope is there for the half-hearted, which I suspect is all of us here? I, I've got to be honest, I, I felt really nervous bringing this word this week. This is not, this is not an easy word, is it? How does it make you feel? Do you feel humbled by God? Uh, do you feel like a failure? If so, I want to say it means you've been listening. And Isaiah 62 verse, uh, 66 verse 2 says this, This is the one I esteem, says the Lord, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know, if our response to this word from God is, you know, I'm not sure I can worship like I'm being called to here. I, I don't think it's in me. That's a good place to be. If, on the other hand, our response is, I don't see the need for this. This is all a bit full on and I, uh, you know, it's, I don't see this as a major problem. Then I humbly suggest to you that your self-justification and self-delusion is steel-plated. Malachi is meant to lead us to the point where we say, you know, I fall short of this, miles short, and I can't do it. I can't do it. It's meant to lead us to actually the only hope we have. You know, one of my favourite passages is in Romans 7 where, where the Apostle Paul is talking about his own half-hearted response. He makes this plan, he ends up doing this instead and he says this, what a wretched man I am. 
Who can rescue me from my own uh, half-hearted compromise? And this is what he says, thanks be to God who rescues me in Jesus Christ. You know, as we go along in Malachi, we'll, we'll see that the only hope for those tragically compromised people like us will be Advent, will be Christmas, will be the one who, uh, if you read Malachi 3, who comes to rescue the half-hearted, who, uh, it says there, will be like a refiner's fire purifying our hearts, who, who will be like a laundress soap cleaning our hearts. And if you get to Malachi 4, it says, he's like the sun of righteousness rising with healing in his wings to heal our hearts. The only hope for hearts like ours is to come again to Jesus, this healer, and to ask for healing. And his promise is this, the more we fix our eyes on him, the more his spirit will change our hearts. The more we will, in the words of 2 Corinthians 3, be changed from glory into glory to be like him. As he rips back the veil of flattering and faux greatness that this world is full of and shows us his greatness. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll sing together. And Father God, there is your people Israel gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and lost sight of you and gave instead their hearts in worship to a golden calf. Their only hope, their only cure was Moses' plea at the top of the mountain. Show us your glory, Lord. And so we, your people, with our own fickle hearts and our own distracted lives, join that cry for the honour of your name and for our own joy. Show us your glory. Amen. Well, let's respond in song. Let's, let's ask for undivided hearts.